Welcome to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 118 of the Hollywood in Toto podcast, The Right Take on Entertainment. This week we're speaking with Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute and star of the new film, The Pursuit. Finally, a documentary showing the glories of capitalism and how it lifts so many people out of poverty like no other system can. You know, Howard Stern is back in the news this week, and it's been a while, hasn't it? Well, the new improved Howard doesn't do that vulgar shtick as much as he used to. He's 65 now, so I guess those fart man gags aren't as cl- clever as they used to be. And hey, you know, we all grow up, and good for Howard for doing the same. But Howard and I have a little bit of history I wanted to share before getting a little bit deeper into Howard's comeback. You know, I grew up in New York City. Actually, I was born in New York City, then I grew up on Long Island, and I listened to Howard's show back in the 80s and the 90s as well. And during the 90s, he read a column I wrote on the air. The column praised Howard and talked about how, you know, he doesn't get a lot of good publicity, but boy, he is very talented, and I think uh, a lot of reporters don't get that aspect of him. Now, I have to say, I woke up one day, heard him mention my name, and I went to my boombox, put in a cassette, and got, I'd say, about 90% of him talking about my column and, of course, ragging on me a little bit because, after all, it's what he does. He's Howard Stern. Now, I know that confession just dated myself with the boombox, but there it is. One of the things I noticed over the years is that when Howard would talk about politics, it wasn't very compelling and it wasn't very smart. Now, he's a bright guy, so I'm not making a disconnect there, but when it came to political matters, it just didn't seem like he was kind of firing on all cylinders. You know, sometimes I'd even agree with him, but not really like the fact that he would embrace a certain subject a certain way. He just didn't frame it well. It didn't seem to have a full grasp of the information at hand, and he just wasn't a sound political thinker. And that came to mind this week when I read some interviews with him. He's got a new book out he's promoting, featuring some of his classic interviews on his radio show. But, of course, this subject turned to politics, and the subject then veered into Donald Trump. Now, what did the king of all media have to say about Donald Trump? Well, turns out he's not a fan. Now, these two have a much deeper history than I ever had with Howard Stern. They, he appeared on Howard's show again and again and again, and he was a great guest, and Howard said as much as well. They talked sexuality, they talked women, you know, the usual stuff that Howard talked about. Well, Trump was certainly fair game on that subject and couldn't wait to talk about all those kind of things as well. They were a match made in heaven. And I was kind of curious because while talking about Howard Stern and Trump again, the media had a different tact on Howard. They seem to like him now. In fact, they're treating him with a strange new respect. And I thought, oh, what gives? What happened? The press used to hate Howard Stern. They've been writing his professional obituary for decades. And I think there's two factors in play. Reporters for years and years said he was a flash in the pan. He wouldn't last. He's just a shock jock. He's you know going to be here today and gone tomorrow. He'll be like Morton Downey Jr. and other people who kind of blaze brightly and then just went away. And yet, 30-plus years later, he's still doing what he's been doing forever. Now, it's impossible to keep that press narrative alive that he's not going to last because when you've gone through 30-plus years, you pretty much destroy that whole meme. 
So they can't really cling to that anymore. And I think they're kind of doing a slow, gentle backpedal. It also helps that Howard isn't as mean as he used to be. He doesn't do the lesbian dilatate shtick as much as he once did. So the press doesn't feel as badly about saying some nice things about Howard and his work. But I think the other X factor is Howard Stern is a big Hillary Clinton fan. And he prefers her to Donald Trump. Matter of fact, he loves Donald Trump, private citizen. President Trump, leader of the free world, not so much. And I think it's one of the key reasons why the press is suddenly seeing him in this brand new light. Now, Stern is a radio legend, and it may take even more time before his full body of work is recognized. But if he keeps trashing Trump the way he is on his press comeback, that could come earlier than expected. The Medicare annual election period deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who started their search for coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online, so he started at MyHealthPolicy.com. I took my time and found the coverage I was looking for, and done. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com and done. Switch to a better plan. And Michael. I met with a local licensed insurance agent face-to-face and done. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to compare top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. Here's the hit tweet of the week. You know, this segment often picks on the same celebrities time and time and time again. But you know what? Oh, they deserve it. So Bette Midler's back in the spotlight again for her latest unhinged tweet. The subject this time, the school shooting a short distance from the HitCast studios here in Denver. Two children sacrificed their lives this week to protect their classmates here in the greatest country in the world. Open and close quotes. School shootings are now normal, and we still have the audacity, the gall, to call ourselves great when we allow our children to be murdered by the NRA? You know, there's nothing more ghoulish than celebrities weaponizing grief just to make some political points. Bet, grow up. You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The HitCast hasn't had three Donia.com's Jim Culver on the show for a while, and I thought, well, it's about time we fix that. Even better, Jim just wrote a new piece for HollywoodInToto.com that I thought was perfect material for this podcast. Here's my chat with Jim about how some conservative film characters really broke the mold and why we might not see souls like that for a very, very long time. All right, well, welcome back to the show, Jim. Tell us a little bit about your new story for HollywoodInToto.com. It looks at characters who are conservative on the big screen, but they don't follow the usual blueprint. Talk a little bit about why that's different, and then we'll get into the characters, at least a few of them that you mentioned in the story. Yeah, uh, so... 
Yeah, I mean, it, so I mean, that, it's something normal in Hollywood, obviously, to to kind of oversimplify and to stereotype. But uh, I certainly have noticed with conservative characters, uh, it can be uh, very specific, uh, and and it can, they can certainly put uh, conservatives in a box uh, in terms of how they're portrayed. And uh, so, I mean, obviously, there's some variation. You know, you, you know, you have, you know, ang- uh, suburban fathers, grumpy old men like uh, Clint Eastwood's character in in Gran Torino. Uh, you can have, um, you know, military, police, uh, uh, you know, religious extremists, characters like that. Uh, but generally speaking, they kind of all fit into the same box. I mean, even whether they're good guys, bad guys, or somewhere in between, they're almost always. You know, middle-aged white men uh, or older white men uh, who are kind of out of step with the times and uh, need to you know, maybe need to change a little bit. Uh, and, and you know, pretty much all conservative characters will fit into that uh, box in one way or another. So uh, you know, which is certainly not the reality. I mean, you just look at our political landscape these days, especially. Uh, you know, you look at the walk away, the walk away movement, and you know what's going on there. I mean, it's you know minorities, women, uh, LGBT. I mean, the walk away just had its first LGBT town hall. I mean, it's you know it's a very wide open landscape, and it kind of highlights the differences between left and right. Whereas left is very focused on identity, uh, conservatives tend to be more about values, and you know you know values can be practiced by anyone. Uh, so. You know, you know, over the years, I've kind of noticed there have been some characters in movies that have been conservative, and they really have kind of broken out of that mold, uh, which made them, in my opinion, a lot more interesting. Yeah. Uh, One note about your characters you've chosen, which are all interesting, for sure. They're not super new. I don't think there's any 2018, 2019 movies you're citing. So I think at this point in our culture, the screenwriters are going to have a harder time making these kind of characters. I think they're going to be less inclined. Is that... Is that fair to say, or is that just a, a rush to judgment? No, absolutely. I mean, as Hollywood's gotten a lot more PC lately, I think I think they've they've worked even harder to put people in in certain uh, boxes. And so, uh, you know, and storytelling can often be more about these days more about checking those boxes rather than putting the story first. And so, what you find with a lot of these characters, which was more the norm back in back in the day, is you know, a character and story come first, and then everything else kind of falls from that. Mm-hmm. So what you what you had were characters that were, you know, they, they just had interesting character traits. They'd say, okay, I'll make this person, you know, a uh, conservative just to make make him a little more interesting, spice him up a little bit, and rather than say, I'm trying to make some some uh, broad statement about conservatives. Yeah. So I, I think that's where a lot of this comes from. And what was interesting to me is that a, a few of the writers slash directors you've noti- noticed here are definitely left of center. I mean, I think Spike Lee is a great example. So uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe I, I don't want to give out the, ho- the whole list away. I want people to check it out on the website, but maybe give two examples real briefly of characters that you noticed who were conservative but weren't the typical conservative. Right. So, yeah, I'll, I'll mention a couple. So, so one, you mentioned Spike Lee. That's kind of a good jumping off point. So uh, back in mid-90s, Spike Lee made a movie called Get on the Bus, and it wasn't widely seen, but it was very good and it was one of his better movies. Uh, it was about a group of, of black men going to the Million Man March, uh, riding a bus together. And so, uh, you know, they're all, they're all black men, but there's actually a very wide variety 
among them in terms of age, background, uh, and, and even politics. And so one of the most, most interesting characters, at least for me, was a character named Kyle, played by uh, Isaiah Washington, who obviously had some controversy later in his career. Uh, and he plays a, uh, a gay uh, black Republican, and which, you know, of course, everyone else is floored by that. But uh, – you know, but he's a really interesting character because he doesn't fit in, into any of the molds they try to put him in. Uh, you know, they tried they try to judge him for his sexuality because it was you know the '90s and that was still kind of fresh. And they, they you know they, they try to judge him for his politics, and he just kind of stands up for what he believes in and says, you know, uh, all these things the Democrats push like like welfare and 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 these kinds of things, dependency really are not good for our community, and they're just making things worse. And so uh, you know he, he so he's a really interesting fleshed out. Character, and uh, and it is a really well done movie. And, yeah. and and by doing that, by the way, it makes everything richer, more exciting, more interesting, and also kind of keeps us off balance a bit. Where we don't know where the character is going to go, and we don't know where the other characters around him will go. So it's a twofer to me, and it's a shame we don't see more examples. We we shouldn't need your list. Absolutely, it, it should be sort of spread out across the <laughs> landscape. But as it happens, we sort of do. Uh, maybe give me right. one more example of uh, from your list that kind of stands out to you. Sure. So this the, not a, not a, a very well seen movie either, but it was back in the the late nineties. Uh, it was a film by uh, Joel Schumacher, uh, and it starred as called uh, Flawless, and it starred uh, Robert De Niro as an ex cop uh, who has a stroke and he's. Uh, confined to his his apartment while he's recovering, and so he meets this this uh, guy who's a uh, uh, a drag queen uh, uh, wannabe transsexual played by uh, Philip Seymour the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, and so it's it's kind of a an update on uh, uh, sorry I'm blanking on the on the show, uh, but uh, uh, you know. We have different roommates that don't get along. Oh, uh, strangers or no, no the the one with Wal- uh, Walter Matthau oh, and yeah, Jack Lippman. <laughs> odd couple, thank yeah. you. Yeah, blanked on that. But anyway, uh, so it's kind of an update on Odd Couple because these are two very different characters. Uh, you know, Robert De Niro's character is very. Uh, very restrained and uh, not very comfortable around Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is, you know, very flamboyant and, uh, you know, kind of a kind of a typical uh, 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 drag queen character. But but Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is actually actually a Republican, and and all of his his uh, his friends who are drag queens are all Republicans as well. And so you know their their unofficial name for themselves is Banana Republicans, which is <laughs> a little bit of a innuendo, but. Uh, you know, and and again, uh, Schumacher is you know he's not a political filmmaker. He doesn't treat it as you know making some kind of broad statement. He just thinks it's kind of interesting to have uh, have these characters that are very atypical politically, you know, and and uh, you know are just kind of are just kind of different. It's some, it's something unique that you haven't seen on screen before, and uh, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying about you know kind of putting character and storytelling first and. And, and I think it's a lot more interesting to see a character that doesn't conform to the, these kind of stereotypes and, and, and goes against them because that gives – makes them more original and gives the writer more more to, to work with on them. Yeah, you know, and so, by the way, can you imagine the reaction from the critics if that movie came out right now as opposed to uh, 10, 20 years ago? They would go ballistic and they'd say, what are you doing? You can't have this. I'm outraged. I mean just think about that and think about how – Critics are attempting to stifle the creative voices all around us, and what a shame that is. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at a character, you know, a flamboyant uh, personality like Milo Yiannopoulos, who I don't always agree with the things he says and does, but he's a fascinating person. Uh, and, uh, you know, he would be a fascinating subject for a, a documentary or, or, you know, a feature or a feature film character based on him. Uh, but obviously they'll, they'll never do it and they're de- deplatforming him every chance they get because they don't want those kind of voices to get out. Uh, they, they want just like the movies do. They want, they always want to put conservatives in, in a box and say, no, you're you're like this and nobody else can be like this. And so it's, it's unfortunate because it really does stifle storytelling and uh, you know, and the more PC, uh, Hollywood gets, you know, the less interesting the characters are going to get because, you know, you know, political correctness kind of kind of puts chains on the muse and doesn't let the writers follow the muse where they want to go. And so the characters, uh, you know, get a lot more conformist. So I agree. I'm seeing it across the across the new movie landscape. I feel like every week I go to a new movie and there's splashes of wokeness. And then I think, what did I just see? I don't even remember it. It was that it was that forgettable. But uh, well, Jim, thank you so much right. for checking in with us. The story is at HollywoodInToto.com. Atypical conservative film characters. Check it out. He just kind of gave you a sample. There's actually five more characters that he throws the spotlight on, and deservedly so. And of course, you can read Jim occasionally at Hollywood in Toto, but all the time at ThreeDonia.com. And we'll have links to these sites on the show notes page for this episode. Thanks so much, Jim. Thanks a lot for having me. You're listening to my daddy's podcast. Please don't impeach him, Jerry Nadler. My hit tip of the week is a breath of fresh air. And you could say it's pretty cocky for a stand-up comedian like Nick DiPaolo to use that title for a new special. Well, I think we're going to give Nick a pass. DiPaolo is a previous HitCast guest, but he's also about as fresh as you can be given our PC age. And by fresh, I mean different and a little bit controversial for sure, and certainly as un-PC as you could possibly get. He's right of center, and he doesn't mind jabbing liberals in the theoretical eye with his routines. Now, some of the gags here are a bit uneven, but other ones, boy, they land beautifully. And Nick's page presence, as always, is kind of menacing. I say that as a compliment. Best of all, he's giving it out for free. If you go to Nick's website, nickdip.com, that's D-I-P, You'll find a free link to the special on YouTube. Hope you enjoy it. I'm Patrick Corelci. And I'm Adriana Cortez. And we're the hosts of Red Pilled America, a new storytelling podcast. Red Pilled America is not another talk show covering the day's news. We are all about telling stories. Stories Hollywood doesn't want you to hear. Stories the media mocks. Stories about everyday Americans that the elites ignore. You can think of Red Pilled America as audio documentaries. And we promise only one thing, the truth. Visit the iHeartRadio app right now to listen to Red Pilled America. This week's HitCast interview addresses an issue that drives me crazy. Why don't more conservatives enter the pop culture arena? Well, economist Arthur Brooks did just that. His new film, The Pursuit, explores in a deeply personal way how capitalism transforms societies for the better. And socialism, well, it's got some flaws. The film is available for rent or purchase right now on iTunes, and it shows Arthur explaining how capitalism reinvented India's economy, and why those socialist utopias in Europe, they aren't quite as good as you think. Now, Arthur is a great person to kind of bring this message to the masses. He's smart. He's not standoffish. He doesn't want to own anybody. He just wants to talk to people and find common ground. And he doesn't mind talking to his ideological enemies either. Matter of fact, I think he prefers that. And at a time where socialism is suddenly cool and all the millennials are giving it a second look, 
a movie like The Pursuit is even more important. Here's my chat with economist turned movie star, Arthur Brooks. Well, Arthur, I'm going to start with a dumb question, but I think it might just set things in motion here. Why is an author and scholar starring in a documentary about capitalism? There were a lot of times over the past three and a half years where I, a- I asked exactly that <laughs> question. Uh, you know, I'm not, I don't have a background in, in film at all. Um, but, you know, a few years ago when I took over as president of AEI, I did so because I was really interested in the moral case for the free enterprise system, which for me comes down to building more lives of, of dignity and, and high human potential. I mean, I came into the free enterprise movement years ago, not because I have some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of an ideological bias or, you know, I grew up saying three cheers for capitalism, but because I learned that it had pulled two billion people out of poverty since I was a kid. And, and I wanted to, and it was the free enterprise system that did that. It was our gift to the world. And, and I thought, you know, I've been talking about that since I was president of AEI and a lot of our supporters and, and people, sort of fans on the Hill and people all over the country said, you got to get a bigger audience. I kept saying, how do you do that? I mean, it's a think tank, man. I mean, this is, this is not, you know, this is not the, the super, I mean, this is academic. And they said, why don't you talk about it the way you do for general audiences and make a movie? And so we we went out into the field after we got some investors who were really interested in my last book, The Conservative Heart. And they we went into the field and sort of interviewing movie makers. And I would always ask them the same question. I would say, you know, why do documentary films about capitalism, why do they all suck? <laughs> and, you know, and it was because I, I, I see everything that's kind of in the genre, right, about the you know financial markets or the financial crisis or you know, whatever. And they're all terrible. Or they're all boring or, yeah. And, and, you know, they would all give me different explanations. But this guy, John Popola, who runs Emergent Order in Austin, he said, because they're propaganda. You know, people want to watch films that are interesting and fun and beautiful. They don't want to watch propaganda. And I said, you, sir, are hired. And that's <laughs> how we got into the movie business three and a half years ago. Gotcha. gotcha. Uh, you know, India plays a storing role in your new film. And that's ground zero for the fight with socialism versus capitalism. And we're seeing who won and the results of that as well. Are there still voices in India kind of craving the old system, saying it didn't work out the way it should have? I was kind of curious about sort of the fallout from that on, a, on an ideological point of, point of view. For sure. I go to India all the time. I go to India every six months or so. And the old intellectual class is deeply wedded to this Nehruvian socialism. This uh, and Nehruvian socialism, you know, comes from Nehru <clears throat> after Gandhi, and he was he was the first prime minister of, of independent India, <clears throat> and he had aligned ideologically, but he had aligned politically with the Soviet side in the Cold War. I mean, he was a he was a, a most people don't realize that India was a Soviet style planned economy, and most of the intellectuals that came of age they, they had this alignment between independence on the one hand and socialism on the other hand. Those things were interlocking. And it, it went on and on. Like if you were an independence person, if you were an anti-colonialist, which all self-respecting people were, you also had to be a hard over socialist and kind of aligned with the Soviet Union. And that was a real problem because for, you know, there, there were hundreds of millions of people who were impoverished, who starved to death because of that ideology in India alone. And it wasn't until the 1990s that a new generation of people started to come along saying, Actually, you can be anti-colonialist and you can be pro-capitalist. As a matter of fact, that is the that is the secret to our destiny. That's the secret to our success. But still, boy, oh boy, there's still deep roots that get, go back to the old way of thinking. 
when I look at the pursuit, it reminds me just in a fraction of a way of a Michael Moore movie because it is a singular personality who dominates the story, who narrates it, who is the focus. Were you reticent about taking that approach or do you think that this, hey, this is the way to enter the story? You know, I, I was actually pretty agnostic. I was reticent because, you know, a movie about me, what could be more boring? But um, I, I was agnostic about the right way to get the story across. Look, I understand that everything is about stories and stories are about characters. And so the, the filmmaker made the case, look, we're going to follow you around the world for three years. <clears throat> and I have a day job, so I can't do this thing full time, but I'm on the road all the time. I do 175 speeches a year. I have the privilege of just traveling all the time. And they would follow me around and they, would, they had tons of footage. I learned that documentary filmmaking is, is so different than what most people think. There's no script. What you do is you shoot around a subject. It's like basically going out and stocking an entire kitchen and then decide what to cook for dinner. And, and, so, and I didn't know that. So they were basically shooting around just all of my activities for three years. In the end, um, you know, John Popola, the director, came and he said – you know, you're the main character in this thing. We're going to talk about how your ideology forms, how your life actually progressed. Cause I have a kind of a weird backstory insofar as I made my living as a classical musician for a long time before I, you know, gave it up and went and got my PhD and became an economist, which is, you know, a very American story, but it's not super typical. And, and so he wanted to talk about that a little bit. And, and, um, I think he did a nice job for me. I get a little tired of hearing my voice for an hour and 15 minutes, but viewers swear that it still coheres. So there you go. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, you know, one of the things I was interested in is, is the, your approach to the subject. This isn't just people with the same thinking that you have. You have a lot of discussions in the movie with socialists, with people who are fiercely against capitalism. Talk about that element, because obviously a lot of what you do the books you've written is, hey, let's engage. Let's talk to people. Let's not shout them down or kind of keep them out of the frame. It seems like it's it's very much in your your spirit. And and how did that influence the film? Well, part of it is I, I know that how people change their minds because I know how I change my mind. Uh, I find it profoundly satisfying to be persuaded um, it, because it's sort of related to humility in a way and humility is really, really pleasurable. And so one of the thing, one of the problems that we have in, in American political discourse today is that everybody wants to be persuadable, persuasive, but nobody wants to be persuadable. And I thought, huh, how can I actually create an, an environment in which people can be both about one of the, you know, the big issues of the day? How do we help others? How do we make, how do we equalize dignity, the sense of dignity? How do we increase human potential? And the way that you do that is by actually talking to people and hearing their views and not caricaturing anybody, not saying that anybody's an idiot. And so in the movie, for example, I mean, look, it's clearly a pro free enterprise thing. I mean, I, that's my way of thinking, but if somebody's got a great argument and they disagree with me, I want to know first, not last. So we go to the, a bunch, you know, we go to people who are self-avowed democratic socialists. We go to Marxists, anti-capitalist street demonstrators. We talk to them and they're awesome people. They, they want a lot of the same things that I do. They want to build people up. They want to bring people together. They want people to be able to make their living and support their families. And, and only when you listen to them can you have a full appreciation for what they're trying to do, which is not to lord power over people or get you know, some politician elected. And then you can actually have a conversation about what's the best way of meeting their objectives, which in, in most cases are my objectives as well. And it's funny because there's one point in the movie where you know people, these democratic socialists kept saying, you know, there are better ways, there are better ways than America, better ways. And I finally say, where? <laughs> like, Denmark. It's like, okay, we pack up when we go to Denmark. 
And it was revelatory to me. I have to say, I'd never been to Denmark before I made this movie. You know, my family, my lineage comes from people who are, you know, poor orphans with a first grade education and who were bailing out of Denmark as it happens. But I didn't know anything about it. So I went there with a a pretty open mind. And I found that it was not what I expected. And I show that kind of not what I expected in, in the film. Yeah, that fascinated me. And I think what, and maybe this is too much of a spoiler for this particular, but I, I thought that this, the secret sauce of what makes their system work is very, is almost incompatible to what makes America work is that, that rugged individualism. Can you talk a little bit of that without giving away too much of what you uh, yeah. uncovered? Yeah, for sure. You know, I kind of expected to go to Denmark and have it be kind of a, a downer. Why, you know, it's, it's not as good as it seems. Everybody says it's so awesome, but it's actually kind of lame. It's not lame. It's, it's awesome. They're, they're, they're happy and they're, they're doing well and they like it. They really like it. I have to say, and I came away saying they like it. And I, I, I don't want to move to Denmark <laughs> because it's not for me. And then I kept thinking, you know, why is it not for me? And the answer is because we're a country of oddballs. You know, this is a United States is, is a bunch of riffraff that were running away from places like Denmark for a reason. In Denmark, uh, they, they, you know, they have huge social structure. There's just, you know, the, the, the key thing to keep in mind about Denmark is that it's a boutique society of about 5 million people. And they're, as somebody in the film says, they're, they, they consider themselves to be one in the same. And so if you're, really ambitious or you want to start a company and get really rich or you're super religious or you want to have eight children or you just want to be different than others, you're going to fail. That's the problem. But that's also America, man. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's you know, every, my, my family moved West every generation, one step ahead of the law, basically until they hit the, the Pacific Ocean had to stop. It's a very typical American story of people that are that are making their own way. There's even some theories that there's a some genetic proclivity toward oddness, toward outsiderness that's that's just running on the American genome in a way. And and if if, if that's true, which of course I have no way of knowing, but if that's true, then what would be a mutation in a place like Denmark would be the norm in the United States. You have a very, very strong sense that there's nothing wrong with them living the way they want to live, but it's not appropriate for us to build it up as if we could make some massive Denmark. We can't, it's impossible, and we don't want to. Yeah, interesting. You know, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because people often say, and I, I work in the arts and I cover the arts, so it's more prevalent what I what I talk about, but you know, think tanks are great. EI does wonderful stuff. We need to get more people, more conservatives engage in the arts, making movies, tell, you know, writing books, you know, uh, fiction stories. And you've done that. And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, you know, people outside of my realm, why is there such resistance to that, that we, we can do both. We can, you know, be at a think tank and do wonderful work and we can make movies and document, like we can do it all and it doesn't often happen. I think your project here, the the pursuit, is the, the the sort of the exception, really. Yeah, it is, and I've often reflected on that. Why is it that creatives tend to be liberal, <laughs> and and why is it that so many analytics uh, they tend to be conservative? And you know, no doubt, <clears throat> there are there's a political basis. There's a kind of an ideological character basis for this. I have a buddy named Jonathan Haidt who teaches at the Stern School of Business at NYU. He's a social psychologist. He does work on and early in his career as a psychologist, he was doing work on on the typical character and he would go in and he would analyze the offices of of 
conservatives and liberals. And you would find that the conservatives, they had really neat offices, they have posters on the walls, it's sports, you know, their pencils are sharpened, you know, and then you go into a liberal's office, it's a complete nightmare, you know, it's like really ratty and, <laughs> you know, and, and it'll, the, the music is playing on the, on, in the office is jazz. And, you know, it's just, it's just exactly kind of what you'd think. And, and then he would, he was looking into this something about the typical character that would lead somebody who's messy, who's comfortable with shades of gray, who wants creativity to break the norm so that the that really wants to break the rules because that's a really interesting thing to do, that those people would tend toward a particular political ideology. There's, it's an adjunct to their own – their politics is an adjunct to their character. And he did some pretty compelling work. But then, of course, then you've got the, the – I guess in a – in a way, you'd say the outside quadrants. You've got the messy conservatives, and you've got the, you know, the buttoned-up liberals. And maybe you and I are in that off quadrant. I'm not. I'm just not sure. Mm-hmm. And do you think the fact that you were an, you were a musician and you know when you were a younger man, did that make you more open to this kind of possibility where you're you're a friend of the arts, you were an artist. I'm sure you are in a, in certain ways. Does that did that help you kind of segue into? making a movie that in ways that maybe other people might not be able to do? Maybe. I mean, I'm really comfortable with the idea of trying new stuff for sure. I mean, I'm just super comfortable with failure. Um, and you know, my, my, I've always seen my life as a startup. Um, the ultimate change that I made was when I left music. I mean, I didn't, I didn't finish college until a month before my 30th birthday because I was on the road playing chamber music. And I played with a guitar player named Charlie bird, a jazz guitar player on the road for a couple of years. Then I wound up in the Barcelona orchestra and, you know, during that time, I didn't I didn't actually go to college. So I went to college much, much later and got super interested in this. These questions of how do you pull people out of poverty? And, you know, that that transfer of at 31 leaving the music business and going to start my doctorate so that I could devote myself full time to this new thing. That was a huge, huge change. But the truth of the matter is that when you're in the arts you're just building your life every single day. It gives you a huge amount of confidence in your ability to create stuff that didn't exist before. Artists in a very real way are life entrepreneurs where, where life, the ether around us is can be made into an enterprise. And it's very important for artists to have this, to be able to articulate the entrepreneurial mentality because in so doing, they can do all sorts of things with their own lives, not necessarily in the medium in which they're trained, but to create new media that are new creative ventures. And I think that's really what I got. All the interesting things I got from the arts are totally fungible mm-hmm. into the world where I am now. And I'm, I'm completely open to new ways of of getting ideas across. And, you know, the, the, the this film is a is a classic example of, you know, making have, having an experiment. I, th- it might have, I thought it might fail. Actually, I thought it might be no good and it'd be sort of lame and boring or whatever. And it turned out to be better, actually, than I thought it was going to be. And, you know, I'm thankful for that. Maybe who knows what the next film will be. <laughs> yeah. We talked before about how this, part of the hallmark of this film is talking to people with different points of view, having that dialogue. It feels like today in our culture, and, and I, I know this is a this is a partisan comment, but I think I, I think it's fairly accurate. People on the left are much less open to that. They want to shut voices down, and I think often when they they play the racist, sexist, you know what card, it, it it sort of shuts the debate down instead of opening things up. Why is this happening now in our culture in 2019? Because I, I didn't, I don't think this was as vibrant. And as powerful maybe five, 10, 20 years ago than it is right now. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I actually, I, I see that a lot on the left, but I also see it a lot on the right where there's, a, there's a lot, a huge amount of, it's just basically tribalism. Mm-hmm. 
And, and the tribalism ordinarily comes at the end of a, a financial crisis cycle. It's it's almost clockwork, as a matter of fact. Um, we every generation when they have when they face a financial crisis, if they do, because most generations don't. But if they do, it's always unique and new. But if you actually look back throughout history, you know, there's a study from some uh, economists in Germany. They published their work in the European Economic Review that looks at. Over 120 years, 800 elections in 20 advanced economies, including the United States. And they show that over the 10 years after a financial crisis, the financial crisis per se, because it creates a uneven economic growth and you know stagnation and envy and 80 percent of the income distribution, that that leads to that causally leads to a 30 percent increase in populist politicians and parties in their voter share. And what that translates into basically is that financial crises lead to populism, which is related to tribalism. I mean, what all populists have in common, right or left, is is basically somebody's got your stuff and I'm going to get it back. And the somebody who's got your stuff, the bad guy, the evil guy is a banker or a rich person or an immigrant or a, a wily foreigner or whatever. Um, I mean, the, but the arguments are sort of have always been thus. And the downstream effect of that is that politicians, who generally speaking are not leaders, they're followers, they have their finger in the wind, and they see people who are falling prey to this populist sentiment, they'll say, okay, so what I'm going to do. I'm going to basically, and, and not just politicians, media, I mean, you see you know, whole cable networks that are catering to these, these viewpoints, college campuses where professors have become utter populists. And basically saying the other side is is not just, you know, th there is another side. There's right, there's wrong. And the other side is stupid and evil and deviant. I mean, it's an outrage industrial complex is basically what it comes down to. And people who are getting rich and powerful and famous by feeding on the fear and envy that have come at the end of this terrible financial crisis. Hmm. It's, it's amazing how cyclical that is. Arthur, before this you go, Hollywood is going to throw their weight behind some Democrat. We don't know who exactly, but it's going to be very clear that they're going to be socialist-leaning, just given the way things are going right now. How do you counter that message? And just talking to listeners out there, and, and, and maybe even secondly, how do artists counter that message? If you're a right-of-center artist and you want to kind of say, hey, no, wait, what do you think should be the, sort of the, the comeback to that kind of a conversation? Well, to, to begin with, let's talk about what's the worst way to deal with that. <laughs> and the worst way to deal with that is when when those, you know, I know you've got a big listenership of people who are either overtly or secretly right of center in the arts and film world. Uh, and the, the natural tendency is to is to get out there and say, you people are idiots. You know, you know, all of your facts are wrong. You're going to lead us to Stalinism. And then if you don't like it, well, you know, too bad, liberal tears, ha, ha, ha. You know, I mean, that's that's the wrong way to go about it, because in point of fact, you know, most of the people that we're talking about, and certainly the people who will consume the stuff from the, the art, the creative stuff from the left, they're not bad people. They want a better world. They want a better country. They want to lift people up. And so our job is to say, you know, this moment of, of great, greater sympathy towards socialism, I mean, there's a lot of data that say that that sympathy among young people is way, way, way overstated. But but suffice it to say that there certainly are more politicians who are overtly socialistic. That's a huge opportunity because we can actually have an have a have a conversation for the first time about how 
we have a better way of hitting the goals of these people, the goals of lifting people up, the goals of bringing them together. I mean, the only reason that, that free enterprise matters is because it lifts up people with less power than you and me. That's why it matters. I mean, that's why I care about it. And that's the moral basis of this. And let's, you know, put your put it right out there, put what your moral objective is out there and say, the reason I love this stuff is because I want I want the next two billion people to be pulled out of poverty, just like the last two billion people have been pulled out of poverty by capitalism. Let's do that together, man. And so this is let's use their moment of popularity to be our moment of popularity as well. And mm -hmm. people will respond. Excellent. Well, I think part of that conversation is seeing The Pursuit. Thanks, Arthur, for joining the HitCast. The new movie is The Pursuit. It's available everywhere May 7th on digital platforms for purchase like iTunes, Amazon, and much more. And of course, please listen to The Arthur Brooks Show on your favorite podcast app. Arthur, I'm really glad you were in Hollywood, and let's talk again about future movie projects. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for your great show. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, -face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, -face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START, MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.